Welcome to the Three Martini Lunch. Grab a stool next to Greg Corumbus of Radio America and Jim Garrity of National Review. Three Martinis coming up. Hey, really glad you're with us for the Friday edition of the Three Martini Lunch. We have good, bad, and crazy martinis for conservatives to close out the week as we head into the President's Day weekend. And Jim, for our good martini, and we're not just sucking up here, uh, Rich Lowry with a great column over at National Review uh, talking about how freedom is once again at the center of the case being made by the Republican Party. We like to think that that's always where conservatives and Republicans are focused, and it's where we should be focused, uh, by and large. But oftentimes, you know, we ended up getting focused on other things. But uh, Rich says, it's not 2010 again in GOP politics, and it never will be, but you could be forgiven for having flashbacks to the beginning of the Tea Party. A leaderless grassroots revolt has emerged from almost nowhere, causing outrage in the media and among elected officials as it opposes government overreach and high-spirited demonstrations. This is happening in Canada, not the United States, but he says still, the embrace of the Canadian trucker protest by the American right is a sign that the Tea Party spirit circa the early Obama years was never fully extinguished. It is freedom that remains the most natural and powerful Republican rallying cry. The Canadian protest is a unifying moment for the American right. To simplify, the populists are drawn to the truckers as representatives of the working class, of a rejection of government by experts, and of a willingness to shock and defy the progressive governing class as embodied by Justin Trudeau. Limited government conservatives, on the other hand, tend to sympathize with the opposition to the vaccine mandate on truckers as an irrational, completely unnecessary regulation and with the push to begin lifting COVID-19 restrictions more broadly. Both elements on the right have denounced Trudeau's invoking of emergency powers. For the populace, the action is a dangerous sign of an impulse to smash anyone crossing elite opinion. For limited government types, it's a dangerous sign of government that can too easily slip free of constitutional constraints. And so, Jim, like we said at the very beginning, uh, it's good that freedom is in the focus now. It should always be the focus uh, and good for Rich for putting it in print. Hopefully this can be a major focal point in this midterm campaign. Greg, as I was reading it, I was thinking about Grover Norquist, and he characterized something he called the Leave Me Alone Coalition, which was, I think, actually predates the Tea Party. Although I think you can say the Tea Party undoubtedly was a reflection of that sentiment in not just Republican circles, but I think people who may be independent and who may not think of themselves, may not be registered Republicans, but who have instincts to kind of go in that direction. And it sometimes reflects itself in lower taxes Sometimes it's in, you know, the small businessman who, does, businessman who doesn't want to get regulated. But sometimes you end up with these unusual elements of the coalition, homeschoolers, uh, people who, farmers who want to sell their own unpasteurized milk. There are all kinds of, uh, you know, strange regulations on importing soft cheeses from France, right? There's all kinds of this big, dumb government rules. And people just get tired of it. They're like, no, I can judge for myself whether this is dangerous. I know you don't think this is necessarily healthy for me, but I'm an adult. I get to make these decisions. You don't. And that is the animating spirit of these truckers up in Canada. And I think there's a general, you know, you can extend that out to all kinds of issues that we're seeing. We are, you know, we are seeing people saying, I want my kids to get a good education and all this stuff you're doing with critical race theory ain't it. This is, you know... Um, this is a indoctrination of my children. This is this insanely one-sided philosophy and an attitude and teachings that spur more division instead of less. Um, I think you can kind of argue that the 
um, frustration with the border, uh, frustration over crime. It's like the government has spread far beyond what its actual primary duties are. And now it's trying to get into all of this micromanaging things and renaming schools because they're named after Abraham Lincoln and all that stuff. And when even in San Francisco, there's this attitude of you are failing in your basic duties of government and you are neglecting them. And instead, you're running crazy about, uh, you know, every little minor thing in life and trying to micromanage people's lives. That is the animating spirit here. And I think that's a very powerful one. I think it um, there was this argument during the Trump years. And I, I think it's safe to say you don't hear Republicans talking as much about the debt and the deficit. And you and I would argue that they should, because just because you're ignoring the deficit and the debt doesn't mean they're going away. Um, but nonetheless, there is this there is this attitude of, OK, we are a populist. The Republican Party is a populist party now. Um Everybody believes in big government. Now it's just an argument of what do you want that big government to do? And I think the reaction we have seen to not just the you know vaccine mandates and other elements of the uh, permanent health security state, right? The vaccine passports and the idea of uh, you know creating some sort of instant card and having to check your show not just your vaccine card but also your ID to get into a restaurant into Washington D.C. and stuff like that. People look at that and say, no, this is not the job of government. We didn't sign on for this. We don't want a Chinese social credit system here. And that's an extremely resonant message going into the uh, midterm elections. What's absolutely fascinating, I mean, you do see some Democrats running from it and fleeing from it. Um, Gavin Newsom is trying to take a victory lap saying, well, we're the first state that's going to declare the the virus is endemic. Okay, great. You're the first one to use that word in official documents. Talk to me when you change your actual laws and rules and stuff. Talk to me when everybody in the state, including school kids, are as free to walk around without a mask as you were during the NFL football games. Right? <laughs> then we can talk. Okay, then you'll, give, you'll get some credit there. Um, that's, that's where we are. And it's absolutely kind of amazing is that Democrats stumbled into this and it took them an exceptionally long time to realize how unpopular it is. And there are punk chunks of that party that still don't recognize it. Um, and, you know, you see folks like, you know, Joy Behar saying she may wear a mask forever, which, by the way, if she wants to, fine. But don't try to expect don't expect anybody else to live by your own neurotic you know, philosophy of life. No, that's exactly right. And the point is uh, that, first of all, the Constitution gave specific powers to the government and everything else to the states and to the people for a reason, because they knew governments had a tendency to do this. Uh, and it's just mind boggling that so many people want to give the government more power when they're not good at anything that they already have the power to do, or at least very, very little. Uh, so I don't know why you keep rewarding people and thinking that good things are going to happen by giving more power uh, to the government. It just makes no sense. And uh, the more conservatives pay attention to that and make that case, I think uh, the better off they'll be, especially this year. People are so sick uh, of government right now. All right, well, let's talk about uh, something way better than government control, and that is the fantastic deals you can get at MyPillow. They have phenomenal products. I love the slippers. They're on my feet all the time here when I'm at home. Uh, I love the sheets. I love the pillows themselves, the towels, the bathrobes, the mattress topper. All of it's fantastic, and right now, amazing deals. More than 20 deals for you to choose from, including MyPillows as low as $19.98. Slippers, 50% off. My pillow towel sets, lowest price ever, $39.99. 60% off Giza Dream Sheets with prices as low as $39.99. And Mike Lindell's free book with the promo code Martini at MyPillow.com. It's Friday. We're heading into a weekend, and hopefully you'll have a good time. But you're probably also going to want to sleep late. And when you sleep late, you're going to want to sleep on sheets that are made from the world's best cotton. 
grown only in a region between the Sahara Desert, the Mediterranean Sea, and the Nile River. The Giza Dream Sheets are ultra soft and breathable, and they're available in a variety of colors and sizes. They're machine washable, and they come with a 60-day money-back guarantee and a one-year limited warranty. You will find all of these offers and more at MyPillow.com. Click on the radio listener square once you get to MyPillow.com and use the promo code MARTINI at checkout. Or call 800-874-0104. Right now, every order using the promo code MARTINI will receive Mike's new book, What Are the Odds? From Crack Addict to CEO, absolutely free. MyPillow.com, promo code MARTINI, or call 800-874-0104. Do not forget the code MARTINI for your free book. All right, Jim, we have talked about inflation a lot, and there are different uh, areas, food, energy, that uh, are really hurting Americans right now. And there's another one, but this one's got even more layers, I think. NBC News reporting uh, that rent in uh, lots of American cities going up a lot. More than 30% in some areas, 35% New York City, uh, 34% in Miami, 40% in Austin, 29% out in Portland, Oregon. Uh, And so this is obviously uh, hammering a lot of people when you have your cost of living go up a third just in rent. Part of this is inflation, Jim, but part of this, of course, is that landlords uh, were told by the government, you can't demand rent for a year and a half. So once they finally can... Guess what? They've got to make up for that somehow, and they got to do it quickly. And so rents are going up. Uh, these supposedly nice provisions at the beginning of the pandemic do have costs later on. Yeah. So basically, what has happened is the entire country had an experiment with what New York City and several other big urban areas have had for a long time, which was the concept of rent control. And to kind of really illuminate this, I'm going to point to for, for those of us who are you know around our age really one of the great questions of our time, which was, how could the characters on Friends afford those massive apartments (laughs) if they were an underemployed actor and a chef and, you know, I think uh, Chandler was some hapless office drone and none of them were were particularly wealthy. So they actually had an episode in which they explained that I think at least two of the characters were living in the apartment that was under the grandmother's name. I don't know if the grandmother had passed away or moved away or whatever it was, but because the apartment was still in the grandmother's name, under rent control, I, I don't remember exactly what the details were in, in New York City, but the gist was your rent can only go up like 1% or 2% per year. It was a very small amount. And so as a result, you would end up in an apartment and paying a rent that was way below what the market value was. And you saw this sort of I don't know, scams of the right sort of thing. But you basically would not transfer whose name was on the deed uh, because once that happened, once ownership or once the, once the tenant changed, the person who owned the property was allowed to raise it as much as they needed to. And generally, if that person had been living there for years and years, the rent they were paying was way less of what the general market value was. So it turned almost into this competition between renters and, and uh, landlords that the landlords, whenever somebody moved out, they had no choice but to hike it as high as they could because this was the last time they were going to be able to make a major hike in the rent for God knows how long, depending on how long that renter was going to be there. It was a really nice in theory, but the end result is that instead of having a, you know, the the slow, steady, manageable increase in prices that was, you know, the sort of thing that happens when supply and demand, lots of people want to live in New York City, lots of people want these kinds of apartments, uh, you know, demand is high, supply is low, that's, that's you know, what, what causes those kind of circumstances. You ended up in a situation in which prices or at least rents were artificially low uh, because of this law of rent control. And then as soon as someone moved out, it would spike up much higher. 
Uh, in other words, it was a, an attempt to hold down the prices, but you can't do it eventually. Well, basically, that's what we did nationwide during the course of the pandemic. Now, look, the economy got hit, got, got clobbered. Lots of people out of work, restaurants, bars, people being told to stay in their homes. It's no, it's good that we gave people assistance for rent, and it's good that we were telling people not to do eviction. But, of course, it kept getting extended, kept getting extended. And you ended up with all of this pressure on prices that had nowhere else to go until you finally had this uh, uh, ended the the uh, the eviction bans and, like that, and things like that. And all of a sudden, it explodes. It jumps right up because all these landlords are trying to make up for two years of not being able to hike stuff or evict people. As much as you try, there is no court that can overrule the laws of, of supply and demand. It, you know, economics wins. It, it wins eventually. You can delay it. You can suppress it. You can push it. But sooner or later, it's like a volcano. All of that pressure bursts right out, and you are stuck with the consequences. And generally, you're in a rough, or even worse spot than you were in the first place. I don't question the efforts to prevent people from getting evicted during a time when massive number of people were thrown out of work through no fault of their own. But there was no way you're going to be able to keep these rents the way they, the level they were for uh, forever. This upward pressure increase in demand was always going to be there. It's not like we spent a lot of time building up the supply of housing over the last two years. And that's why you're in this situation where rents are skyrocketing, particularly in the biggest cities in the country. Now, it's unbelievable. And yeah, I mean, a lot of people are trying to figure out what was happening in the early stages of the pandemic. But I mean, this this fight was still going on last fall, Jim, a year and a half after it where you know, the economy was certainly on its way back, if not fully back. And we're still not fully back. But this harkens back to our first martini also, when the government gets in and tries to manipulate policy and whether you have to pay rent, what, what, what rent, when is rent due, how much do they have to pay, uh, whatever the government gets involved, especially on a long-term basis, things just get worse. All right, on to our crazy martini now, Jim. And the Olympics are almost over. I believe they end this weekend. And while we're happy for the Americans that, uh, that won medals, uh, I think the American team did pretty well when I glance at the medal count. I haven't really watched much of the Olympics. Uh, a guy from the UP of Michigan, not too far from where I grew up, uh, did win a gold medal. So that was pretty exciting. But uh, overall, the Olympics have been a big dud. We talked early on about the ratings for the opening ceremonies and even the first few days. Uh, historically low, way below the previous lows. And things have not gotten much better. And in the meantime, in addition to... You know, China's well-earned, disreputable status on the world stage and people staying away. Uh, the IOC has once again covered itself in dishonor with the uh, handling of this women's figure skating situation, which is one of the marquee events of the Winter Olympics. Uh, Russian skater, 15 years old, tests positive for a banned substance, a heart medication. And the IOC lets her skate anyway. And so uh, all sorts of sturm and drang about that, of course. In fact, here's Mike Tirico, normally mild-mannered host of NBC Olympics, calling out the Russians and the IOC. It's time for the IOC to stand up. Whether it's about blocking Russia from hosting events for a very long time or stringent and globally transparent testing for Russian athletes going forward, if swift action from the top of the Olympic movement does not happen quickly, the very future of the Games could be in jeopardy. So, Jim, we know from the whole Peng Shui situation, we know, well, the IOC going back ages in terms of even how they award the Olympics to various cities are as corrupt as they can get. And so it's good that they're getting called out. It's good that the Chinese Olympics uh, are getting a big thumbs down from the world for the most part. But I hope that this can get still get cleaned up and the Olympics isn't tarnished forever. This is a crazy martini that has like separate sub flavors, you could say, of good, bad and crazy within it. Um, it is good 
that I think the Chinese have not gotten the international propaganda victory that they thought it was going to be. Uh, the ratings are way down uh, than they were from both four years ago and from the ones in Japan. Um, uh, you know, this is, I think, you know, off by 50% from 2018, uh, which is, oh, by the way, lower than, you know, previous Winter Olympics. Um, the only night that the, the NBC really had great ratings was surprise, surprise, after the Super Bowl. Uh, one one TV critic characterized them, looked at the numbers and said the numbers are bouncing off the bottom of the ocean floor at historic lows, right? So if you're in that sense, good. But I say this as somebody who, you know, well, not a diehard Olympic uh, fan. I, would, I want to do, enjoy, I prefer to have Olympics that I can enjoy. I'm not anti-Olympics in general. I just, you know, loathe the uh, International Olympic Committee with the, you know, raging fire of a thousand suns going supernova. This, you know, I'd like to have a great big international competition. I don't begrudge you if you're watching the Olympics and you're rooting for Team USA. I want every athlete to have a great experience that they're not getting that. And it's, I mean, you know, in large part because they picked uh, China, but for now we're going to turn our attention to a different autocratic regime, which, oh, by the way, had such a giant and widespread state-run doping system that technically Russia is banned from competing in the Olympics. Now, if you're like, wait a second, what, if, if Russia's banned from competing, why am I seeing this, you know, poor little angel-faced uh, figure skater and all these other Russians? Like, well, they act, they operate under the uh, Russian Olympic Union. They have, they basically, they changed the name. They're, they're not, they're athletes of Russia. They're not the Russian team or something like that. Still the same trainers, still the same coaches. They changed the logo, basically, and that's how they decided to work around this. <laughs> and then surprise, surprise, I know it's going to shock you, listeners, Russia decided to cheat. Go figure. You know, it's so unlike them, you know. And so apparently she got caught. This was at the Russian national competition in, I think it was the other on Christmas, December 25th. She, uh, but they, for some reason, where they sent the tests, it you know, took forever to process them. Finally, gets through, and they find out. But after you know, after the team event, in which the Russian team has already won the gold medal, uh, U.S. won silver, and so they disqualify the Russian team. So the U.S. moves up to gold, Japan moves up to silver, Canada goes to bronze. I am angry about everything that happened. I think it's all very clear to say, Camila uh, Valieva. Look, you know, she's a fifteen-year-old girl. There is no way she on her own decided to start taking drugs uh, that were performance enhancing without anybody providing them to her, encouraging her, telling her, stuff like that. The fingerprints of the Russian or Olympic team are all over this, right? And this poor 15-year-old girl gets caught on this and is getting denounced on this all over the world. We know she didn't choose to do this on her own, or at minimum, she was encouraged to do it. But at the same time, I lay out this at length in today's Morning Jolt, the Russians picked this utterly adorable 15-year-old because they knew we weren't going to get all that angry at an utterly adorable 15-year-old who cries the moment this is get caught. If this was some, you know, 22-year-old Russian man, you're like, well, hey, you cheated. It's not your fault. You see her crying, like, oh, my God, your heart breaks for her. And I think that's what the Russians were counting on, the idea that we would see her differently and we would not want to punish her for the actions of others and that that's how they would get away with it. <coughs> the IOC is not letting her keep her, her medal they allowed her to compete, but said that she wouldn't be able to win. Like, it was a really weird trying to split the baby men, you know, mentality here, which didn't really work. Bothered the head, like, really and angered every figure skating competitor. Like uh, Tara Lipinski and Johnny Weir are not known for like getting frothing at the mouth with anger. They sounded like Stephen A. Smith practically the other night. They were like, <laughs> you cannot do this to this poor world girl. And this, you should not be competing. You know, 
because I love to imitate Stephen A. Smith. All of this is heartbreaking. All of this is outraging. But the thing is, Greg, this is so predictable. Everyone could it's the Russia had already basically done all this stuff at the Sochi games. And yet for some reason, everybody's just kind of like, oh my goodness, I can't believe they did this exact same thing again. <laughs> oh, by the way, you can't trust the Russians. Do you think that lesson might be applicable to any other issue going on in the world right now? <laughs> they are who we thought they were. <laughs> Where is Dennis Green? The late Dennis Green. God bless him. Where is he? You so, you know, I, I the, the end result, though, is you see this in the, the International Olympic Committee. This is the natural consequence of all of their decisions and all the times they've bound Russia caught with its hand in the cookie jar and basically said, oh, that's really bad. But, you know, if we banned all the Russian athletes, it wouldn't be fair to all the ones who didn't cheat. And it's because of that. We're not going to do that. And because you kept giving them an inch, they took a mile. And that's where we are. And this has turned into a disastrous Olympics. I think it's the worst Olympics ever. And I say this not, I mean, I didn't want China to get a propaganda victory. So I'm somewhat pleased that the ratings are down. But at the end, I'd rather have a good Olympics. You know, there are tons of good countries in this world. Why does the International Olympic Committee keep giving the games to Russia and China? I know they've only done it like three times in the last, uh, since 2008. But that still feels pretty often. And it just has turned into it. Tariko mentions the possibility of not giving the Russia games for a long, long time. The next couple of games are in Western countries. They're democracies. We don't expect to have these sorts of, you know, uh, avert your eyes from the ongoing genocide. And we're not going to put the ski jump right next to this steel plant that looks like nuclear reactors out of some hellacious post-apocalyptic landscape. Um, you know, the International Olympic Committee has run the games to the ground. And I think what we saw last night, if there's any kind of a good aftertaste to this crazy martini is you can see NBC's patience is, is, is disappearing. And, and, and Tariko is not Stephen A. Smith. He's not somebody who's usually, you know, shouting at the camera or something like that. For NBC to do that on air, it was a sign. It was basically, I think, a warning shot across the bow at the National Olympic Committee saying, we can't sell this stuff. The ratings are low. Our advertisers are not happy. This is not what you promised us. Stop putting the games in autocratic regimes and start patrolling for doping and stuff like that. I just did some quick Googling. Uh, the 2024 Summer Games are in Paris. The 2026 Winter Olympics are in Italy. And of course, the 2028 games, uh, Summer Games are in Los Angeles. So no autocratic regimes, at least at this point, will be hosting over the, over the next couple of cycles here. So uh, hopefully uh, that aspect uh, won't be a black cloud hanging over the games. It would be an absolutely delightful development if the hard lesson of us, the International Olympic Committee, which, oh, by the way, the International Olympic Committee is like made up of like royalty. I'm not, I'm not using a metaphor. I mean, like they've got a bunch of princes and kings from Europe, from the Middle East, all that kind of stuff. So you wonder, gee, they're not standing up for democracy? I wonder why these monarchs aren't all that uh, wrapped up by this issue. Um, but the other thing is, the International Olympic Committee, I, I would like to think the lesson they take from this is that putting the games into a country run by an autocratic regime isn't worth the trouble. You know, you can. the world's got a whole bunch of countries. The world's got a whole bunch of places that are big, perfectly nice host cities. Yes, they're really expensive. Oh, by the way, maybe it's not every facility needs its own separate, you know, like we had lots of fun and good, enjoyable Olympics throughout the 70s, 80s, and 90s. Why are they turning into these multi-billion dollar uh, extravaganzas that end up, you know, costing the host city so much? So um, there's a lot of need for reform, and maybe this will be bad enough that it will spur some serious changes. I know. The Olympics used to be so much fun. Remember when they finally made money in 1984 and every commercial you watched back then, Jim, something was the official, whatever it was, of the 1984 Summer Olympics? Uh, that was a good time. Carl Lewis. Good. 
Yeah, man. Carl Lewis, Mary Lou Retton. Uh, the, most of the commies didn't show up because we had boycotted in 1980. So we racked up gold medals like nobody's business. So anyway, lots of fun. Of course, the 80s were just awesome. Uh, Jim, I'm headed off on vacation, so I'll be out all next week. We both will be gone on Monday, so we have our best of uh, underappreciated presidents edition of the Three Martini Lounge that we did a couple of years ago. So if you remember that one, enjoy it again. If you haven't heard it yet, I, I think it'll be worth your time. Uh, also, uh, Chad Benson will be in for me next week. So, uh, Jim, uh, have a great week, and I'll, I'll see you a week from Monday. See you in a week, Greg. Listeners, I'll see you'll hear me Tuesday. Jim Garrity, National Review. I'm Greg Corumbus of Radio America. Thanks so much for being with us today. Do subscribe to the podcast if you don't already. Tell your friends about us as well. Thank you so much for your five-star ratings and your kind reviews. Those really help us, so please keep them coming. Get us on your home devices. All you have to say is play Three Martini Lunch Podcast. And follow us on Twitter. He's at Jim Garrity. I'm at Dateline underscore DC. Have a great weekend, and join us again on Monday for the next Three Martini Lunch. We are living in difficult times where people fear having thought-provoking conversations about pressing issues. And although we're in the midst of an information explosion, there are a lot of forces aiming to distort what's true. I created The Bill Walton Show to provide a forum for in-depth, thought-provoking conversations with leaders, artists, entrepreneurs, and thinkers. Please join me at thebillwaltonshow.com to explore what's true, what's right, and what's next.